Wow, this episode, man, we talk about when things go wrong, what do you do? How to use the hot debrief and cold debrief principle? How a special forces veteran deals with fear in his daily life and why fear could ultimately lead you down the path to become an unhappy billionaire who has really dropped the ball in the majority of areas of life, except one, obviously, finances. This is a hot one, so get into this. Episode 449, be concise, clear, and execute to win with Itamar Morani. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast, tracking down the finest alpha minds on the planet for you. I'm Adam Lewis Walker, host of the number one men's development podcast that is now a best-selling book, Awaken Your Alpha, Tales and Tactics to Thrive. And it is my mission to share you the real stories, the useful stuff, the juicy stuff, and the reality of what it takes to thrive. Do the little guy a favor, subscribe and review. It'll help get him off my back. This episode is sponsored by the Talk Accelerator. Increase your influence, income, and impact. If you've ever thought or dreamed or wondered what it would be like to do a TEDx talk, you can do that. So head over to talkxcelerator.com. Jump across there and it'll have all the information, case studies, why you might want to do it, all the information around it. And also, if you jump on the green button on there, you can book in a complimentary idea clarity call to speak with me. What is your idea worth sharing? It's time to play a bigger game. It's time to amplify your message and make it happen. Get to the podcast. Okay, enjoy the show. We have an absolutely unique episode. We have Itamar Marani on the line. 10 plus years in the government and private counter-terrorism industry, youngest federal agent to graduate as an air marshal in Israel's history, former member of the Israeli Special Forces, former chief of security for a billionaire. And that's going to be an interesting, we're going to touch on a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, top 10 in the world at the amateur levels, public speaker and executive mission clarity coach. It's going to be a good episode. Obviously, you can tell. Itamar, are you ready to awaken your alpha today? Let's do it. Awesome. I gave a pretty rounded bio there, but again, that's partly because you gave a very clear, concise, and had a lot of clarity in the bio you sent me. Is there anything you'd like to add or highlight? What are you all about at the moment? It's really what it is about being concise and being clear. That's what I'm about. It's like I try to help people get a better understanding of what they need to do, how to prioritize, and how they can execute to win. Love it. I mean, and that's just an example. It comes through in the bio you sent me because. 95% of the bios I get sent, I have to do what you've done for me. I have to go through and literally bullet point a huge bio. I have to pull out, right, which bit do I want to say? And whereas that one, I'm like, well, I'm going to say it all because it's done for me. You know, it's quicker to just <laughs> bang, bang, bang. And it's got the key points, especially for people li uh, listening. So I really appreciate that. Tell us a bit about your origins. Where are you originally from? Where are you speaking to us from today? Which I know is an interesting answer already. <laughs> And uh, how did you kind of get from that point to this point? So my origin is I'm Israeli, born and raised in Israel, just outside in Tel Aviv. Um, but from age seven to 13, my folks were diplomats and we lived in the US and that's why I kind of have an American accent. I was, yeah, I was not, ex I have to say, when, yeah. when you came on, <laughs> the, the background and what I was expecting, that's why you should never assume, yeah. and then you spoke and I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting... Yeah. I mean, just to have I, interest. I should sound like this, like I Thank talk with you, a thick Israeli accent, but yeah. 
I wasn't going to ask, but I was just going to say, how would you sound if, you know, if you'd stayed in Israel? Because I couldn't even, in my head, I was thinking, I can't place that accent at the moment. Like, I was, I was yeah. interested to hear it. So there we go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, ca- yeah. sorry, carry on. <laughs> so, after age 13, went back to Israel, um, served my military service there in the Special Forces, then went on to the government, into our version of the RFBI, CIA, MI5, MI6, whatever it means to you. Yeah. I met a lot of Israelis when I was traveling and was going around the world and they'd all kind of like got out. Is it still that you have to do, is it three years of, you know, military service, every man? Is that still something like yeah. that? Three years are mandatory for men, two are for women, but combat isn't really mandatory. Okay. After that, I went into the federal service, was in the air marshal program, like you mentioned. Um, after that, for a while, I just kind of just wanted to do jujitsu. Started getting good at it, wanted to try it out. Just lived in Brazil for a while, competed in the world's three times, the world championships, uh, never medaled, made it to the final eight once. Oh. And after we're there, got to live with it. <laughs> then after that, I got a call from one of my former bosses when I was stationed in Moscow on behalf of the government. And he was like, you know, Mar, have you ever been to London? And I was like, no. Like, how come you haven't called me in three years? And I asked me if I've been to London. He's like, why don't you come to London? I want you to meet somebody. Oh. And I was like, what's this about? He's like, it's a job. It'll pay tremendously well. It'll be interesting. And I promise you, and I'll take care of you. Come to London, visit me, and I'll take care of you. Now, and that's, a, that's story, a nice phone call yeah. to have. <laughs> it's a very nice phone call to have, yeah. And long story short, that's when I met that billionaire. The yeah. one that you spoke about, the Russian oligarch. Um, I met him. I met his son there, who's the head of the security project and manages all the people and all that. And I met him there. They were like, listen, my father wants to retire. He sold a couple big assets let's call it made a couple billion he bought a giant mega yacht and he wants to travel around the world as a retirement world tour and he wants you to lead the whole project oh and my god so the the, yeah. the classic movie billionaire by the sounds of it these are the ones the, the stereotypical billionaire he's got the mega yacht <laughs> he's russian <laughs> he's doing... <laughs> this is awesome he's got the private jet the chopper all that good jazz oh my yeah. goodness well I will get it as an, as a host. Now I'm going to do my best not to spend the whole interview just asking about that. Cause that, <laughs> wow. So in the military service, you know, 10 plus years and the counterterrorism side of that, was there ever a point where you thought you were going to be a lifer? Like, cause obviously you went quite deep and you did obviously a, a lot in there. Was there ever a, an option for you or did you ever consider that? There was an option like I, in the military, I almost went to officer school, but at the end, last moment, I just decided it wasn't for me. Um, honestly, the, the structure of it, in, both in the military and in the federal service, it is a challenge because they would rather, let's put it this way, like as an entrepreneur right now, like risk is a part of it. Mm-hmm. In the military and in the federal service, they were both systems that did not encourage risk taking to a certain degree. Like they would rather you not do something incorrectly than you possibly making a giant positive change. And just after like growing up a little bit and recognizing that I knew this wasn't a long-term play. Mm-hmm. And when I later went into the counter private terrorism industry, what I also noticed is that the people who were much older than me, the people who were 40, 50 at the time and had families, they were all very, very unhappy. It's mm-hmm. like you have to be on, on duty basically when you're there you're 24 hours on call and you're away somewhere in the world for a month you usually work a month rotation where you're at work and then a month you get flown back home you get full salary but it's a month vacation month work and the month work month vacation is not a happy long-term system to have a nice family and nice kids yeah 
And so that's, I was like, this is not something I want to be a part of long-term. Yeah, I think that's a crucial thing you touched on. And I had a very similar experience in a completely different arena. Let me just put that out there, completely different. But I think everyone who's listening, if you're in a position and you're, you know, you're looking and questioning, look at people you know, 20 years ahead of you who've done either very well or just kind of gone the normal path. And I did a similar thing with my, you know, my head of department you know, uh, and people who I admired and were great guys or women and who have progressed in that arena. And like you said, the lifestyle they had, it's not something in terms of the hours they were putting in their family life that I was like, choose <laughs> what you want um, very carefully yeah. and have that awareness. So in counterterrorism, and I, I want to ask about this because obviously it's a different world, especially to you know, someone like yourself, to a civilian. I would definitely class myself 100% civilian in this. You know, I don't know what I don't know. And I'm sure a lot of it I don't want to know because you've probably seen and, and heard and been involved with things that are you know, quite concerning. What was the biggest challenge being involved in counterterrorism and trying to deal with, you know, basically the dark side of humanity? You have to harden yourself. That's the bottom line. It's like being a nice, considerate person in that world is just not a benefit to you because you're dealing with the ultimate risk. And it is really challenging trying to be a hardened individual the whole time. Like I'm sure that a part of the whole Awaken the Alpha thing it's also like you're able to be vulnerable. You're able to like be connect with other people. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And in that line of work, you cannot do that. It just hardens you because you're constantly dealing with that stuff. And especially when you're working undercover, like I did, where you have to put up this guise, like you cannot be soft. You cannot be truthful with people. And you just put up this front the whole time. It eats oh. at you at some point. What was the longest period that you went undercover? Because in the movies, you have to see these people literally going undercover for like two years, three years. Is that realistic? Or do you kind of, were you kind of undercover and then you back to normal for a day or for a, in the evenings or whatever? Or is it, do you go, you know, deep undercover, I guess would be the word. Um, for me, it wasn't, I was not a spy to clarify. So I didn't do those things where you go undercover and try to, but I was just, doing a lot of, let's call it proactive surveillance and uh, protective surveillance. So what it was is just like the people in my environment, let's say when I lived in Moscow, the people in my neighborhood, in my block, in my environment should not know why I'm there, that I'm a diplomat under that kind of guy. Cause it just leads to like negative attention. Yeah. So you do have some people at work that know who you are um, and you can be more relaxed around them. But as a whole, like people can't know what you're there. So whenever you're meeting new people, you have to have a cover story, why you're there, what you're doing and all that jazz. Wow. Moving uh, away from that arena, you get this call. You're now, sounds like you're in a kind of your own version of the Wolf of Wall Street and you're kind of, <laughs> you've got a key role in this. Talk to me about, you know, your first experience of, I don't know if that was the first billionaire you met, but of meeting this individual and things you noticed early on. And then, um, how that experience from your perspective as you know is obviously you're going into it thinking am i going to do this is this going to work is this going to fit you know it may look great on paper but is this going to be a nightmare <laughs> so talk to us about that experience yeah so the experience was when i got that call to be completely honest i was looking for something like that because as i mentioned i'd done jujitsu but jujitsu thrills don't really pay those bills <laughs> <laughs> when i was offered a very high six-figure job i was happy to take it at that point so I just kind of went with it. What I expected from the billionaire, what my hope was, was it'll be somebody like a Warren Buffett or Richard Brunson. The people oh, that you hear though, my yeah. mission 
get my employees to become better individuals so they can eventually like have their own businesses and live this good life. So I can distill that knowledge. That's not what I got. My, <laughs> the, the former boss I worked for, um, that was not his approach. He was always very respectful towards me. Um, but I can't say that that was the, the way he treated everybody else. And he was obviously successful at making money, but he was not somebody I wanted to model my life around in any which way. Yeah, that's what it was. That was the truth. Interestingly, that I mean, you touched on a point there that caught my attention. And I, I mean, it's, it's good for you that, you know, he was respectful to you um, and not to a lot of other people by the sounds of it or just, you know, treat people differently. So he wasn't consistent. Do you feel like you get that sometimes because of your background? For example, he was a key example. He's obviously doesn't treat some people with respect because of your background. Do you feel like when people are aware of it, even to a degree, they give you a bit of respect or they at least don't be rude to you, for example, like that? Um, absolutely. I think it's human nature. It's like there's the, the more primal aspects of how people associate in their minds who's an alpha or whatever, and they adjust their behavior accordingly. Um, I don't favor it, honestly. It's one of the things that like, I'm a black belt in jiu-jitsu and in the martial arts, there's definitely a sense of black belt worship where people look up to black belts. And I saw it coming up as, oh, it created this really unhealthy effect when people look up to you for no valid reason, just because of your background, <laughs> but not really yeah. who you are as a human being mm. or who you're trying to become. And I saw that it had negative effects on people because it would cause them actually to digress and they would get fooled into that, to yeah. believing, oh, people look up to me, so I must be worthy of it. And it would actually cause him to be comfortable and regress. So like it does happen, but honestly, I try to shirk it as much as possible. That's, that's, I mean, again, a really good point. Cause I'm sure, you know, just that it's just another label. Like the black belt does not mean you're a, a great human being much like you could have, you know, like an orange belt or a white belt. Who's an absolute legend. So yeah, I think it's a key distinction and like, you know, unhappy billionaires or, you know, usually I say unhappy millionaires, but you know, it's great to have that example. Well, actually, on that touch, we touched on it before the interview. It wasn't someone you wanted to model yourself on. How do you feel his fulfillment was and his lifestyle for him personally from what you observed? Because obviously, he was very close to that scenario. He was one of the most miserable people I've ever met. I'll put it that very clearly. Like, I would not want to be in his shoes as him as an individual. He was very unhappy. He was not fulfilled. I think what happened is that he lived it's like there's that saying that money isn't everything but not having it is and it's like i think after a certain point where you're taking care of all your basic needs and some extras the niceties like if that's all you focus on then you just can't focus on other important things in life you can't focus on your family on having a healthy relationship with your kids about actually like becoming a better person and i think he just went all in on just the cash so everywhere else he was bankrupt he was not a happy individual by any which means. And I think it was a very, for me, it was a blessing because at age 27, when I got pointed into that position, I was like, oh, wow, money isn't the answer because here's the person who has everything, but he's extremely unhappy. So it was a blessing as far as that, which obviously led me to read a lot of books about this, and try to figure out where is that tipping point where yeah. once you've taken care of financially, this shouldn't be your primary concern anymore. Definitely. Well, and obviously doing that research and having that unique experience, I'm fascinated about fear, especially in this current climate. My next book's going to be on it. So how do you, how do you think fear played into that gentleman's um, psyche in terms of, you know, trying to fill this void with money, 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 
and, and obviously, to a certain extent, never stopping. You know, that billion, billions is, that's, you know, excessive. <laughs> Especially if you haven't got your, the rest of your house in order. It's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, like, what do you I think, think he feared? He feared not having validation and being a, like having a sense of abandonment, not having a sense of importance of status. Now, he sought out that sense of importance, not from within, but from an external perspective of money, of status. And it was literally this keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing in billionaire levels. Like when you go to St. Bart's in Christmas, everybody just is playing who's got a bigger mega yacht. And these are yachts that cost half a billion dollars and up sometimes. And that's all that is. And you can see that when they're there, they're actually the most unhappy because they don't get to be the big honcho. There's always someone's a bigger honcho. <laughs> Dude, that's a good you know point, I mean? yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think it was just the fear he had was about having to like, find a different um, locus of self-esteem than just how much money I have. And that's why he wasn't able to stop pursuing that because there's always a bigger club. There's always a bigger club to join. Okay, you get the house in the south of France. Now you have the biggest penthouse in Monaco as well. Are you treated well in the casino? Do you have the biggest mega yacht in St. Bart's? Like it keeps going and going and going. And that's why I think there's no pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. It's just a continuous rainbow unless you recognize that this shouldn't be my only locus of focus. It should also have something internal. Yeah. And how, how many years or how long were you in that position? Um, about, let's say three and a half. During that time, what would you say, when you look back at it, was probably one of the most ridiculous situations you found yourself where you're just like, how did this happen? Like, how did I get here? Or even it could be linked to the last question where you're like an example of where his fear or his deep unhappiness just played out. And he, I touched on it, like being at these exotic places where you think, you know, when you see it on the media and they're like, oh, look at all these mega yachts all getting together, like it's a big party. But it's interesting you say from inside, that's probably one of their most unhappy times. So I guess my first, like, my first moment of like, oh, I'm in a different like place in the world of people have different money was literally my first day on the job. We were in St. Bart's. And we went into this uh, restaurant that was connected to a hotel. We were going to go to the beach there. And we go to the gift shop for a second. And he didn't like carrying around a wallet. So he would have me carry around like a big wad of cash. And we go into the gift shop. And then his two-year-old kid is like pointing to a doll. And, he's, and I, I didn't know anybody yet. I didn't know how things were yeah. going. And the kid is like pointing to the doll. And he's like, Edomar, can you get him the doll? And I'm like, okay. And it's like this. It was an alpaca. Like a stuffed alpaca, but actually made from alpaca fur. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, I go to the cashier. I'm like, we, we want to buy this. How much is it? And she's like, it's 900 euros. And I was like, okay. And I, and I go to the boss just to make sure this is okay. So I tell him like, sir, this it's 900 euros. And he just looked at me confused. Like, he's like, yeah. He's like, why are you mentioning this to me? I'm not following. <laughs> Don't waste my <laughs> That's time. What I There's different levels of money in the world. And it was just so shocking that he's like, yeah, why would you even, of course, that's how much dolls cost. Yeah. 900, 9,000, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I guess like the second moment where it was really very profound was about a year later when we were in St. Bart's on Christmas again. When I, from St. Bart's is a small island in the Caribbean that has a very small private airport. It's where all the billionaires go. And then there's a bigger island next to it called St. Martin. St. Martin has a lot more people that are, let's say, middle class and upper middle class. And it was such a weird distinction when I flew out of St. Bart's in that private airport to see how all these people weren't smiling, keeping up with the Joneses, whatever it may be. No one was smiling. 
And as soon as you have to, you have to connect with St. Martin to go to you. So grateful. Everybody was radiating. They were so happy. They got to take this vacation. Mm. They got to enjoy it. And it was just such a profound difference. Like you could not ignore it. It's not that I was trying to look for it. It just yeah. smacks you in the face. A difference between like not being able to appreciate things anymore in St. Mar- St. Bart's and the more, I guess, regular people in St. Martin still had that sense of gratitude about them. It was just, it, it was shocking almost. Yeah. I, I, lo- I love the comparison. Like you say, you didn't seek it out. It's just like night and day right to, next to each other. I feel like that when I go um, minor traveling around the States. On air, I love flying. I love airports. And I, I, I see a lot of faces like, this is the worst thing ever. And I'm still just like, woohoo, <laughs> I get to go on a plane, yeah. which is, you know, I like going on planes. What can I say? Yeah. <laughs> Man, there's so much we can talk about. We're going to jump into the alpha round now. And I'd like to start this off with, is there a particular favorite quote that really sums up your approach to life? Is there anything that springs to mind when someone puts you on the spot like this? You will not rise to the occasion. You will fall to your lowest level of training. And that's just what it is. Love that. Love that. Is there a particular inspiration or impactful book for you that just was, you read the right thing at the right time, or or it could be an all-time favorite book. Is there any that stick out for you? I love The Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. It's a book that, like the movie 300 was based upon that book, but the movie was very, um, let's say like it's very masculine, violent, and it just showcases these ultimate wars where the book talked about the dichotomy of war and how the Spartans also encouraged people to weep and cry after battle so they can connect to those other sense of themselves. And there was just so much ancient wisdom in that book. I've read it so many times. Um, I'm a big fan of the Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. Anything Marcus oh, really. Man, that is, <laughs> that is my jam for the last two years. Nice, that is, yeah. yeah, I love that book. That really helped me two years ago. Um, just getting that like, consistency. I was having a, you know, a little wobble as we all do. Nothing major, yeah. but I was like, that just really grounded me again. And I love, absolutely love that. Um, you can be, I'm definitely going to read this, that Stephen Presswood books. I've heard it once or twice before, but that's, that's tipped me because one of my favorite books is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Yeah. And I've never read The yeah. Gates of Fire. So I'm on it. Having gone through the bulk of this interview, who from your network really stands out or jumps to mind when I say would make, be a great guest and offer some great value and insight to the Awaken Your Alpha podcast? I'm guessing it's not the billionaire. <laughs> I would like to interview though, because I don't think he'd do it because that's, I'm like, wow, what happened? <laughs> they have one buddy from uh, the British SBS. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, he's a very solid dude. And I think he could, Simon, I'll have to reach out and see if he's interested in doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and he if, could be a very solid dude. If he's, solid if he's dude. like, not sure, I don't mind doing it if he wants to have like a, you know, anonymous, no video and just, I can call him whatever. <laughs> that sounds brilliant. Thank you. From your lifestyle, what do you feel is one of your essential, if not daily, almost daily kind of routines, habits that if you, if you don't do it and then at the end of the day, you're like, I didn't have the best day. That's probably why. So two things. One of them is I have to work out very hard every morning. I think it's part of my, you know, we're all different as people. Like I think I'm just a little more naturally aggressive than most. That's why I joined the military. That's why I do jujitsu. And I know that that's something that I have to kind of get out of my system in the morning and it allows me to be more clear headed. 
So I do that every single morning. And if I don't do that, I feel like my judgment throughout the day isn't as clear and precise. The second thing I do actually every morning is again, I actually read the Daily Stoic because it helps me set like a true north to my day. That these is, this is the kind of thought mechanism that I want to have. This is how I want to view the world. So I can detach myself and I get emotionally involved into things. Yeah. So shout out again, Daily Stoic. Oh yeah, God. I've got to get Ryan on. He, uh, he did agree to an interview about three, four years ago. I'm just trying to pin him down. I used to drop off the kids solidly for a year and just park at the lake and just drink my coffee and read the Daily Stoic. And the discipline was not getting too far ahead. Just, you know, just that little touch yeah. and, you know, thinking on the, the quote and the, the kind of concept each day. I absolutely loved it. When was a time that you really had to, to fight to awaken your alpha. We've talked about all these scenarios where you, you know, you've black belt in jujitsu, you know, special forces and, you know, working with this billionaire, really sort of high level stuff. When was a time where it was a real challenge for you? And maybe you thought this is a time when it's, it seems like these accolades and things you've achieved are a long way off when you really had to work hard to get out of that challenging time. So I talk about this very openly, but I started out in the special forces. I started out in Israel's most elite special forces unit. So what's equivalent to Delta Force, SAS, uh, SEAL Team 6, if that's what it means to you. And after the hardest part of advanced unit boot camp, which is like hell week, I got kicked out of the unit. I was not ready mentally to be there. After a really long couple weeks where you're drained and spent and sleep deprived, we went out on a very long run in the middle of the night. And I always struggled with the long runs. And at a certain point, one of my officers came to me and he's like, you saw I was struggling to eat them. Are you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm okay. He's like, you sure? Do you want to take a rest on the truck for a second? And I said, yeah, I, I, I can take a rest. And that's tired state. And as soon as I sat on the truck, my ass was out. Ah. And it was one of those moments where at first, you know, I was like, oh, I got tricked. I didn't know what I was doing. I was tired. I got upset. And it was basically like I had to own up to that. And that was a very challenging time. It was also a very, very public failure because all my friends, when you're 18, they know you're in that unit and that's everything for you. And during that time, that's your entire status. That's your entire sense of self. I am elite. I got to the most elite unit and all of a sudden that gets crashing down. So to recover from that and then redeploying to another special forces unit, that was a very, very big challenge. That's yeah. the thing that I said comes from that. You do not rise to the occasion. Like I, like when I went to that next unit, I prepared my mind for these kind of scenarios that when I'm hurt, when I'm tired, if people are going to try to trick me, so to speak, if people are going to try to expose weakness in mine. There's just not going to be weakness exposed. I'm ready for it. I'm ready for these questions. I'm ready for these scenarios. I really like that hot debrief and cold debrief concept. Like you do a hot debrief and sometimes if it's just like a micro like exercise or whatever, it's like, okay, don't do that again. Let's keep going. Yeah. But if it's after something that we're going to have to add to the SOPs afterwards anyway, and we know we're going to do a cold debrief, we do a hot debrief on the spot to make sure we don't forget anything. And then we also do a cold debrief that's much more in depth. Like a hot debrief, we still have all our gear on, everything's, we're just done. And like a cold debrief, after you get a shower, you get some food, you figure everything out, and then you update the SOPs afterwards. So I had a run-in recently with Jocko Willink. Someone else, when I think of jujitsu, and you know military backgrounds i wondered if it what's your opinion on have you read any of his stuff and his approach to things and obviously he's a, a big jujitsu man talk to us about what attracted you to judo and as i say your opinion on or experience of jocko and his his work first off i have nothing but positive things to say about jocko 
I think he's a great leader. I think he's doing a great service to the world. I think he's extremely articulate and his ability to articulate these principles of combat and how to apply them to life are phenomenal. Yeah. Like these are when I read I read all his books and when I read them, I'm like, I know this stuff, but his ability to articulate it and crystallize it is phenomenal. And I think he's helping so many people. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for Jocko. Jocko is the truth that he was listening. Awesome. Um, as far as jujitsu is, jujitsu, I just started because in the federal service in the Krav Maga, like they're like, you have to learn groundwork. So I started jujitsu, but I just loved the complexity of it, both technically and emotionally. And I could see how when you put people in certain situations, a lot of people start to get emotionally involved. When you knee on belly, knee on neck somebody, and they feel like their ego is sprouting, anybody who got emotionally involved and couldn't keep that in check would very close and like very soon leave themselves into peril by overdoing something, over exacerbating themselves, retiring themselves. I'm like my entire jujitsu game is based around getting people emotionally involved. So they overextend themselves, they tire themselves and then achieving victory. And I think jujitsu is a phenomenal tool for anybody who wants to practice their mindset because you will get uncomfortable. And one of the biggest factors in success will be if you're able to cool and like keep your ego down, and only do what you're technically supposed to do, not what you emotionally want to do in that situation. And if you can do that in jujitsu and you can translate it to life, it's an amazing asset. Wow, man, I'm sold. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so, um, and finally, what was the one question that you thought I was going to ask, or you'd hoped I was going to ask, and you feel like I've missed a trick? Like, is there anything left unsaid that you want to, you know, share with my listeners? I was wondering what you were going to say about this Corona time because it is oh, yeah. time right now. I got so present in this, in this interview. I, oh, is there Corona going on? Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. So when this is being recorded, we're like in a really, um, really challenging time. So 2020, I'm interested to hear your, your perspective on that. And great call. I'm glad I asked that. <laughs> The thing I think the biggest thing is with all these situations of chaos, crisis, and how you can manage first yourself and then others during this is to come to a decision that you're going to rise to the occasion. It's something I always finish every single one of my talks with, like how you can, what you can do to take action on this now. The first thing is you have to make a decision that you're going to take action on this now. So during this time of chaos, this time of crisis, when so many people are panicking, you have to make this decision that you're not gonna get sucked into it and you're gonna see this as an opportunity to raise your level, to raise to a whole new level that you would not have had the opportunity to do so unless this crisis came about. And I really wish more people take this upon themselves right now as an opportunity. Like make a decision that this is gonna be your time to shine. In five to 10 years from now, you're gonna look back and say, I was so proud of how I acted that way. And I did that by deciding every single day to step up to this challenge. My final question, I felt like I asked it, but I actually asked it about the, the billionaire's perspective. What's your perspective to fear and how you handle that? I've been able to handle it in you know, many different adverse situations throughout your life and career. Fear exists. It's just what it is. Like you can't avoid it. But I also think that we way overplay fear. We evolved a couple hundred thousand years ago. And the way our brains evolved to calculate fear you were dealing with much, much um, greater peril. Like the fear was, can I leave my tribe and get eaten by a tiger or a bear? Now it's, will I look awkward or people make fun of me? 
<laughs> and we give way to things that we shouldn't give way to them. Like our ability to, to judge, should I do this, should I not do this based on fear is usually completely inaccurate. And what I learned also from that situation in the special forces that I quit that first time was when something aches, something hurts, something's challenging, something I'm afraid of something and I don't want to do it, I usually do it anyway. And what ends up happening is that in hindsight, I almost never, ever, ever regret actually doing it. So that's the way I deal with fear. I try to think about it not How do I feel about this right now? But how would I look back at this in hindsight? Brilliant. Well, and if anyone wants to continue the conversation, as I do, what's the best way to connect with you and follow up? They can find me on MoraniConsulting.com. They can find me on Facebook at Morani Consulting or HMR Morani and all the regular social networks. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing the time with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, man. Appreciate you having me. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast, tracking down the finest alpha minds on the planet for you. Please do subscribe, reach out, connect, pick up a copy of Awaken Your Alpha, Thousand Tactics to Thrive, available on Amazon. This episode is sponsored by the Talk Accelerator. Increase your influence, income, and impact. If you've ever thought or dreamed or wondered what it would be like to do a TEDx talk, you can do that. So head over to talkxcelerator.com. Jump across there and it'll have all the information, case studies, why you might want to do it, all the information around it. And also, if you jump on the green button on there, you can book in a complimentary idea clarity call to speak with me. What is your idea worth sharing? It's time to play a bigger game. It's time to amplify your message and make it happen. Do the little guy a favor. Subscribe and review. It'll help get him off my back.